0: As far as drama goes, it's hard to beat the exodus from Egypt. After 400 years, millions of Israelite slaves break free from the pharaohs with the power of their god. Moses visits ten plagues down on the mighty Egyptians. There are magical snakes, pillars of fire, setbacks, mutinies, and of course, the hand of God on the outstretched arms of Moses parting the sea itself. The underdog goes up against the greatest power of the ancient world and wins. This is the essential story of Jewish history, and for thousands of years no one questioned this remarkable tale of redemption. But with biblical criticism beginning in the 1800s and 1900s, the skeptics began casting a critical eye. Not just on the miraculous stuff, like the parting of the Red Sea, but the basic story instead. In recent decades, it's become fashionable to declare that the story of the Exodus is entirely made up, a mythical metaphor designed not to convey historical fact, but instead the theological and philosophical truths held first by the Israelites and then the Jews. We're often left thinking about this story as a kind of binary choice. Either the Exodus happened, as outlined in the Hebrew Bible, or it's all made up. The last few episodes to kick off the season, we've been talking about the Near East before the Israelites arrived on the scene, how early Mesopotamian cultures influenced the Israelites, and how Egypt's struggle to dominate the land of Canaan made space for the people of Israel to emerge sometime before about 1200 BCE. And now we turn to the Israelites themselves, who they were and where they came from, from the Exodus to the conquest of Canaan and the emergence of the Israelite god, For the next several episodes, we're doing a deep dive into the ancestors of the Jewish people. Starting with today, did the famous exodus from Egypt ever really happen? I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Oughta Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So I obsessively watched the 1956 epic Ten Commandments when I was a kid, desperately wanting to believe that it was true, just like in the movie. But as it turns out, we don't get the story from Charlton Heston and Cecil B. DeMille. Instead, it's primarily from three books of the Hebrew Bible Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The story begins with the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, having arrived there from Canaan centuries earlier and been forced into bondage. But God eventually heard their cry and sent the prophet Moses to deliver them out of oppression. Through magic tricks, persuasion, and ultimately ten awful plagues, Moses freed the slaves and led them on a perilous but miraculous journey into the desert wilderness, heading back to the Promised Land. Chased by Pharaoh's chariots, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, adopted God's laws at Mount Sinai, wandered for 40 years in the desert, and then arrived at the River Jordan as a unified nation ready to seize the land of Canaan through military conquest. Now here's the thing. Besides the Bible, there was really no solid evidence that this ever happened. No records have ever been found attesting to Israelite slaves in Egypt. Ancient Jews did not build the pyramids, We all know, anyway, that was the aliens. Case closed. But here's the other thing. We likewise have no solid evidence that the Exodus didn't happen, or at least could not have happened. And actually, if we strip out the more fantastical elements of the story, we find a scenario that is not only not implausible, but is actually quite plausible. Maybe. I think here's our problem. We tend to think that everything is a house of cards, If we can disprove just one fact, or show that just one thing never happened, then we justify dismissing the entire tower as nothing but a pile of rubble. It excuses our disbelief, or our wanting to disbelieve. I think it's because we watch too many shows about lawyers, and not enough about ancient Jewish philosophers. So, Netflix. Be on the lookout for that. But anyway, look, the skeptics have a lot to go on when it comes to the Exodus. And forget the imaginative stuff, like the Red Sea parting or the Ten Plagues. These stories were added to the Exodus account to emphasize the power of the Israelite national god over nature and Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. They were never intended to be factual stories. But what about the broader claim? Did the Israelites really come from Egypt out of slavery? Even when we discard the miraculous wonders, it's not hard to cast doubts on the premise of the story. According to the Hebrew Bible, 600,000 Israelite men left with Moses. When you add them up with their wives, children, and of course their golden retrievers, you're looking at upwards of 2 million Israelites bolting Egypt at the exact same time. Yet neither the Egyptians nor anyone else recorded a revolt by millions of slaves who then migrated to Canaan. It's hard to imagine that millions of people spent 40 years wandering in the Sinai desert without leaving a trace for archaeologists. And the Israelites themselves didn't drop too many clues in their account. The Hebrew Bible never mentions the pharaoh who enslaved them, nor the one whom Moses led the rebellion against. That deprives us of being able to triangulate an exact time frame for the exodus. And finally, archaeologists have found almost nothing of Egyptian material within Israelite culture. If I lived somewhere for hundreds of years and then moved someplace else, wouldn't I have with me in my new place the tools, clothes, pottery, and even the styles and architecture of my original home? Apparently the Israelites didn't. Now there are plenty of counterarguments to all these points. For example, a few hundred years before the Israelites came on the scene, a group of people also from Canaan began moving into the Nile River Delta in Egypt, The Egyptians called them the Hyksos, meaning rulers of foreign lands, and within a couple centuries they had established themselves as a rival power to the pharaohs. For about a century they ruled northern Egypt, but in the 1500s were finally defeated and expelled. And this is the only time we know of when a large group of foreigners was recorded suddenly leaving Egypt, similar to what is described in the Hebrew Bible. The history is too fuzzy to make a direct connection between the Hyksos and the Israelites. But because their stories are so similar, some scholars theorize that the Israelite account of their exodus was taken in part by a preserved memory of what happened to the Hyksos. Since both peoples were from Canaan, it makes sense that the Israelites would have been aware of the Hyksos story. But who knows? So it seems we're trapped in between the absolute believers and the absolute disbelievers. But what if there was another way to think about this? And it turns out, that if we change just two details about this story, we open up an entirely new way of thinking about whether the exodus ever really happened. In fact, we can argue that it did. The argument is this. Instead of two million Israelite slaves escaping from Egypt, it was only, like, a handful of people. And here's the kicker. These former slaves weren't even Israelites to begin with. So it turns out that when we ignore the Bible's claims about two million escaped Israelite slaves, we get a whole new insight into what may actually have happened. If instead we go with a handful of people, or maybe just a few families, maybe as many as several dozen, suddenly a lot about this story in the Hebrew Bible starts making sense. Now first of all, it solves a lot of problems. It explains why there's no recorded accounts of the Exodus. Egypt was a major empire. Zillions of people were constantly going in and out, especially from next-door neighbors like Canaan. A few people escaping slavery would hardly have made the front-page news. And instead of wandering around the barren desert for 40 years, what if they stuck to the well-traveled trade highways that crossed from Egypt to Canaan? It's only a couple hundred miles. Even fugitives could have made that journey in a short amount of time. Which also explains why no trace of them has ever been found. It was an otherwise ordinary journey for a small group of people along a major highway route. But such a journey would have been a very big deal to them, of course. And when they settled in Canaan, they were welcomed by the locals, who saw these road-weary travelers as curious outsiders. These former slaves began telling their fascinating story to the natives, and it's one that the locals would have appreciated, since they too had been under the dominion of Egypt for some thousand years. There was a long cultural history there, and the story told by the escaped slaves would have been heard with a sympathetic ear. Over time, the story took on new and greater dimensions. As it passed down the generations, it would be remembered and embellished and take on a miraculous aura, especially as the descendants of the escaped slaves ensured that the narrative was kept alive. As the newcomers became more embedded with the locals, marrying into them and having children, Pretty soon, the story of the escape from Egypt became everyone's story, not just this one group of outsiders. And thus, it was written down as the miraculous tale of how their powerful national god had dragged them from the depths of despair to the promised land in which they were now living. This is not a crazy, irrational, illogical story. And if we buy into this theory of a small group of escaped slaves and how their story went viral, it gets even more interesting because now we can stake a claim on exactly who these people were. By the way, if you're wondering where I'm getting all this from, well, it's from a whole bunch of different sources. But if you're looking for an excellent book that pulls it all together, I very highly recommend Richard Elliott Friedman's book called simply The Exodus, written a few years ago. He goes into much greater detail than I do, of course, and he's also highly readable and concise, an incredible scholar. It's just a fascinating read, and I draw a lot of stuff from him. Richard Elliott Friedman, The Exodus. Okay. Let me jump ahead for a second to drop a spoiler on next week's episode. We're discussing the origins of the Israelites, and next episode we're going to have two big takeaways. One, that the Israelites are native to the land of Canaan, that is, they didn't come from somewhere else, like Egypt. And two, that the Israelites are made up of several groups of people who came together for various reasons and eventually assumed this single national Israelite identity. In taking this account of a few people making the exodus from Egypt, rather than all of the Israelites as stated in the Bible, we can theorize that they were one of the several groups of people who merged to form the Israelites. And in fact, when they arrived in Canaan, the Israelites were already there, These former slaves simply fell in with the Israelites and over time became one of them. In the biblical account, the Israelites even have a name for this group. They call them the Levites. Now, if you're Jewish or you know your Hebrew Bible, you might be familiar with this term. And if not, no worries, we'll be talking about them a bunch. In the Bible, the Levites are one of the Israelite tribes, but they are specifically a tribe of priests, Unlike any of the other tribes, they don't have their own territory, they just have their priestly duties throughout the land of Israel. And there are some other unusual things about them. For instance, eight Israelites in the Bible have Egyptian names, most famously, Moses. And all of the people that have Egyptian names are Levites. The Levites also recorded in the Bible excruciating details about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the large tent that houses the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box containing the Ten Commandments that is the throne for God's presence here on earth. It's essentially a mobile sanctuary or temple that the Israelites carry with them around the desert. And here's the thing. Scholars have discovered that the depiction of the tabernacle matches almost exactly a real historical object, the headquarters tent that the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II carried around in battle. In other words, the Levites who wrote about the tabernacle in the Bible knew this very particular bit of Egyptian military architecture that was associated with this one specific pharaoh. And there's plenty more. The Hebrew Bible writes extensively about the need to care for the stranger and the acceptance of the alien more than 50 times. It's the standout concept behind the social justice imperative of modern Judaism. And every single one of those times is written by Levite writers, In fact, the Levites are the only ones, not just in the Hebrew Bible, but in the entire ancient Near East, who write about such concern for aliens. And to add to it, several scholars have translated the word Levi as meaning a kind of resident alien, as a name for someone living in our midst but who comes from somewhere else. We don't know whether they had that name in Egypt and brought it with them to Canaan, or whether they acquired it when they settled amongst the Israelites. And by the way, the writers of the Bible who weren't Levites hardly ever write about the Exodus or Moses. It's really something that only the Levites are concerned about. Now, there's a whole lot more to this. And again, I point you to Richard Elliot Friedman's book. I also realize this is opening up all kinds of questions about who wrote the Bible, when and why, and we're going to get to all that more towards the end of the season. For now, we're still just in the beginning stage of trying to figure out who exactly were the Israelites and where do they come from. So now, let's put it all together and see where we land. Let's run with our theory that a small group of people whom we know as the Levites, escaped slavery in Egypt, crossed the desert, and wound up in Canaan. This explains why they all have Egyptian names that were preserved in the biblical account. It explains why they are so obsessed with this journey they took. It explains why their writings preserve so much Egyptian knowledge and folklore, like Pharaoh's battle tent. It explains why they wrote with such passion about caring for the stranger, because they themselves were resident aliens. And it explains why they don't have any territory to their name, Because when the Levites arrived in Canaan, the Israelites were already there. The tribes were already established. Everyone already had their own territory. Rather than any of the tribes having to give up territory for the newcomers, they just assigned them a task that didn't require having any land, plus a little compensation. Each tribe gave the Levites 10% of their harvest. And in addition to their priestly duties, they were also teachers, which further explains how they were able to cement this story in the public imagination. They were the ones who taught it to each new generation of Israelite children. Richard Elliott Friedman points out that we don't know why this group of escaped slaves was so readily accepted by the Israelites already living in Canaan. There are three possibilities. One is that two people, for whatever reason, felt a kinship for one another, making the Levites' absorption into Israelite society pretty easy. Another is that perhaps the Levites had in their own past also come from Canaan, so this was a reuniting of long-lost cousins. Or third, perhaps the Levites recognized the Israelites as the strongest power in Canaan and so simply allied themselves to them. Whatever was the case, we know that the Israelites fully accepted the Levites, who quickly became Israelites themselves. When the Israelites later recounted their historical narrative in the form of the Hebrew Bible, they fully included the Levites in their exodus from Egypt as an essential part of the Israelite story. By then, though, the Israelites wanted to write all of themselves into the exodus, not just the Levites, so they inflated the numbers to declare that 600,000 men listed in the biblical account. That's how we got that huge number that confounded scholars and seemed to defy a reasonable explanation. We also can't know exactly when the Levites would have fled Egypt. Remember, our first mention of Israel comes from the military account of the pharaoh Merneptah in the year 1208 BCE, but because the Levites were a separate group and weren't even called Levites until given that name by the Israelites, we can't know whether their exodus took place before 1208 or after. But we can claim with some elegance that an exodus of people did take place, that they made their way to the promised land, that they settled with and eventually became Israelites, and that whether or not the Red Sea ever truly was parted, that the foundational story of Judaism was very much a real event. Does it matter whether the Exodus story is historically true? I'd love to know the facts of this stuff and to reach out and touch the "Quote unquote, real history. I listened recently to an interview with the eminent biblical scholar Baruch Halpern on the podcast Judaism Unbound. He said, you need to know what kind of history you're asking about. It depends why you're writing the history, because the answer you give is contingent on the question you're asking. Baruch Halpern made an excellent point about the miracle stories we find in the first five books of the Bible, including the Exodus stories, The Bible, he said, does not present Moses as a historical character. It's really about the relationship of these characters to God. It's about how they are executing a divine vision. And that's the core of this Exodus story as the Israelites remembered, recorded, and edited it down through the centuries. This story is foundational to the narrative of from where the Jewish people derived their values and understood themselves to have become a nation of people. It's where the Jewish people derive our highest ideals about freedom and inclusion, and about upholding human dignity. And it starts the road towards the ethical monotheism that we have today, in which a standard of morality applies to everyone equally in the administration of justice, which is so essential to a functioning human society. It doesn't matter if the story is entirely true, or just parts of it, or even none of it, because we accept it as true, and hopefully act accordingly. Now, if the Exodus was real the way we're telling it here, in which just a small group of people fled Egypt, that also helps us to understand another huge problem in the biblical account. Following their trek across the desert, the Bible has the Israelites standing at the edge of the River Jordan, poised to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. There, says the Bible, the Israelites waged a vast, violent, and ruthless military campaign against the native Canaanites to seize all the territory promised to Israel by God. And that, says the Bible, is how the Israelites ended up in Canaan, what is today Israel, the West Bank, and parts of Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. But if it was just a few Levites who fled Egypt, then this story can't possibly be true, for they were no great and huge army capable of wiping out the Canaanites. And indeed, the archaeological record finds little evidence of an Israelite military campaign laying waste to Canaan in the 1200s BCE. Instead, it looks more like the Israelites were native to Canaan and simply gentrified the Canaanites out over several generations. So once again we ask, who are the Israelites and where do they come from? One group came from Egypt as former slaves, but all the rest, that's next time. As always, my website is JewOttoKnow.com and my email is JewOttoKnowPodcast at gmail.com Thanks for listening, everyone. Out. see you later.